0: Yes, Father, this is true. You have come to dwell with us. Now, by that same grace, speak to us. Make your word, the text from Romans 8 that we will be considering, cause it to dwell within us and to bear fruit richly in us and among us i pray in jesus name amen well welcome one and all uh, i invite you to turn with me i welcome you back into the book of romans chapter 8 as we come to the next to the last message in uh, the series on this this just wonderful chapter in the Bible. Romans chapter 8, um, my focus today is going to be on verses 31 through 34. We'll just get a little bit into verse 35, uh, but I, I want to, before uh, getting into that, I want to read it, and I want to read it in its fuller context. So why don't you take a Bible, uh, whatever form, and get over to Romans 8. If you're using the church Bible, that'll be on page 944, spilling over to 945. Um, Uh, Before I read it, I want to uh, express public thanks to Pastor Jin for his splendid sermon last Sunday on the splendid text of Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. It's an incredible text. And in fact, 28 through 30 is the doorway through which you walk into the final section of Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. So I feel it would just be, just uh, you'd be getting only half the package if I began to read in verse 31. I want to go back to 28, which Jen preached last week, read 28 all the way down to verse 39. So why don't you follow as I read, and this this is such a great text, I'm going to ask you to stand while I read it. Would you stand? Romans 8, verses 28 through 39. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, the Son, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And who shall bring any charge against God's elect? I mean, it's God who justifies. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Please be seated. Now, as I said, my focus is going to be on verses 31 to 34, a little bit of 35, but we'll get 35 to 39 next week. Uh, Last night, I had the great privilege and honor to bring the Christmas message to the International Students Banquet, their annual Christmas banquet. 200 guests at the dinner... Uh, many of them from all over the world I, uh, Karen and I were seated at the table before the program and I was uh, sitting there Alongside three young adults from mainland China a young adult from the Philippines a young adult from Kenya I mean, it's just it was just remarkable this gathering of people and many of them had never uh, Witnessed or never really understood Christmas and the meaning behind Christmas is a wonderful event. So at one point in my talk, I shared a story that fits so well with this text that we're going to be looking at this morning. It has to do with a mother, a mother who lives out in Oregon. Her name is Vicky. And oh, five or six years ago, Vicky was in the kitchen and her... Uh, her son four-year-old son was out in the kitchen with her and he was kind of sitting at the table drawing with crayons or something like that on the table and he kind of at one point he looked up at his mom and he said hey mom what are the what are the names of God and Vicky, very earnest very earnest mother and Christian she said well well God has many names she said father lord Jehovah, She just started listing names. Uh, uh, Lord of Hosts, El Shaddai, El Elyon, Jehovah Rapha. She just started to list all these names. And the son is kind of, he stops coloring, and he's looking at her, and he's getting more and more confused. And, And finally, she's done with the list, and kind of confused and kind of, Uh, Totally out of his element, he just says, well, Mom, can I just call him Steve? (laughs) You have to know how to answer a question and you have to know how to answer the question in relation to the person who's asking it. And if you get that idea, you've got what we're going to see happen with this text this morning. Because in the text, verses 31, 35... Questions are asked. Now, there are all kinds of questions in the world. Did you ever notice how many different types of questions there are? I mean, there are upfront, straightforward questions. How much snow fell in Princeton last week? There are sarcastic questions. Well, you're not one of those people who likes snow, are you? There are rhetorical questions. What would Christmas be without snow? There are multiple choice questions. Which do you prefer? Number one, snow. Number two, freezing rain. Number three, sleep. Number four, ice pellets. Number five, a beach chair in Florida. Which do you prefer? But then... They are either way questions. Questions that, if you know how to answer them, will take you in one direction. But if you don't know how to answer them, will take you in a very different direction. If you know how to answer them, they can lead to to life, to change, to stronger faith. If you don't know how to answer them, They'll lead to to harm, despair, and spiritual death. We have in this text that I read, we have seven questions. They collapse down really to four. Uh, Let me show you the questions and show how they collapse down to four. I'll, I'll point out the questions, okay? First of all, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? Now that one is kind of the, the transition into this new section. It's the trigger of the question. And it's really pose making a statement. I've just told you such incredible things that we've got to think about this. We've got to let this sink. So that one collapses into the next question, which is Who can be against us? If God's for us, who can be against us? Then we get at the end of verse 32, as Paul answers that question, he talks about uh, God who did not spare his own son. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's that's the next question, but that kind of collapses into the one right before it. Then we have verse 33, who shall bring anything against God's elect? Verse 34, the next one, who is to condemn? Uh, Verse uh, 34. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he asks the next question, which collapses into the one right before. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? My point is that though you have seven questions, they really... Through kind of bundling and collapsing, they collapse down to four. Four questions, basic questions, four either way questions. Depending upon how you answer them, they can land, lead you to change and deeper faith. Or they can lead to despair and deeper doubts and spiritual death. Those four questions, just to kind of clear up all the bundling and stuff that I just did, here are the four questions verse thirty one excuse me uh, verse thirty one who can be against us verse thirty three who can bring any charge against god 's elect the third one verse thirty four who is there to condemn us? Excuse me. Who is here to condemn us? And then the fifth, the fourth one, verse thirty-five: Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Those are the four questions. And I know of no other set of questions that captures the kind of stuff that we all ask in our doubts, in our depressions, and in our dark accusations that's why i've called this sermon how to direct the gospel against your doubts depressions and dark accusations notice i've got an asterisk after the word depression there and that's because i'm not speaking here about clinical depression if you or a loved one suffers from clinical depression, you first of all should not be embarrassed to be here at Stone Hill Church. You would, I hope, find here a community that's here to support you and understand you and love you. And I would want you to feel at ease talking about. Your diagnosis with me, with a pastor, or an elder, or in your small group. But secondly, if you struggle, or loved ones of yours struggle, I always want you to pay attention to what your professional is advising you. The medical attention that you are receiving. I don't want you to hear this sermon that I am about to preach as some sort of diagnosis or prescription for you if you struggle with clinical depression. This sermon may help, but there's a lot more to struggle with in cases of clinical depression. When I use the word depression there with the asterisk, I'm talking about kind of everyday depression. Garden variety depression the kind of stuff that we refer to when we talk about being in a blue funk or being in a season of Discouragement or having a death spiral or having the holiday blahs, whatever it is That's what I'm talking about and it is to that kind of depression. It's it's to the doubts that we all have it's to the dark accusations in our souls. It's to that kind of stuff that this text speaks. And I want to bring this text right into that stuff. So I'm going to take 3 steps. We're going to I'm going to give you 3 steps this morning on how to bring the gospel into your doubts, your depressions, and your dark accusations. And the first step is to write up front Remember in this text that there's a who involved. Before we look at the text, let me make a very obvious point. The letter S in the English language makes a big difference. It turns a singular noun into a plural noun. So, for instance, you say you go, you, 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 have, you go to the doctor, you have to have a medical test. They conduct the medical test. You meet with the doctor after the medical test. You know that the results of the test aren't going to be provided at that meeting. So you say to the doctor, well, well uh, w- when will I get the results of the medical test? And if the doctor says, well, in a matter of a week, that's okay. You can deal with that. But if the doctor says in a matter of weeks, plural, doctor, I, I, I don't know if I can wait that long. The letter S in the English language makes a huge difference. The letter S in this text, in the original language, Greek, makes an even bigger difference. And here's why I say that the letter s takes the greek word for what and turns it into the greek word or english word who and if you look at the text closely you will see that all four of those questions begin with a who and not a what look at it verse 31 who can be against us verse 33 who shall bring in a charge? Verse 34, who is to condemn? Verse 35, who shall separate us? Right behind this text, right behind this list of questions, sits a who, not a what, a who, a person, the evil one, Satan. Paul is not simply being rhetorical here when he talks about who shall do this and who shall do that. He has Satan on his mind, and that will become explicit in verses 38 and 39, and we'll get to those next week. Satan's on his mind here. And he understands that Satan's main activity in relation to the people who know and love Jesus which I trust his sanctuary is filled with. Satan's main activity is to accuse and tear down and destroy. And he loves to do that through questions and doubts and accusations. That's why Satan's called the devil. The word devil means originally accuser someone who accuses who hurls uh, charges and false accusations against us that's why in Revelation 12 verse 10 uh, Satan is described this way the accuser of our brothers and sisters the one who accuses them before our God day and night so Satan accuses us before God. He says, look, God, look at that Restusha. Look at Restusha. He sinned again. How can you call him your own? And Satan accuses us. To, however he does it, he insinuates accusations against us in our own hearts. I mean, we know that he tried to do that with Jesus in the great Temptation. Three temptations, two of which involve the question, if you are the Son of God, do you see how he's insinuating doubt into Jesus' mind? He's planting an accusation. You're, You're not really the Son of God. Prove it. This is what he does. Now, There's enough weakness and sin in me and in you. There's enough sin and darkness and untruth in the world around us to push all of us into doubt, depression, and dark accusation. But Satan's there too. And he intends more. And he's not to be forgotten so remember as you think of this text in relation to your doubts depressions and dark accusations remember there's a who involved now that takes us to the second step which is therefore I want you to see the four questions that we're now about going to move through I want you to see these four questions for what they really are okay Uh, let me remind you of the four questions. Verse 31, who can, who can be against us? Verse 33, who can bring a charge? Verse 34, who is there to condemn? Verse 35, who can separate? Now, keep your finger here. I want you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, which is a little bit later in the New Testament. Ephesians, chapter 6. If you're using the church Bible, that's going to be on page 979. Paul gives us here a sober reminder just along the lines exactly of what I've just given to you. I'm going to begin in verse 10 and uh, read through verse 12 and then jump down to a little later in the text. Paul writes this, Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand against the schemes of the accuser. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, Paul's telling us here. When he says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, I think what he's he's saying there is we do not wrestle simply against flesh and blood. Oh, we wrestle against flesh and blood. He's already said that time and again in the book of Ephesians. But it's not just that. It's not simply that we wrestle against that. We also wrestle against all kinds of demonic evil forces. Satan and his army, in other words. And so his counsel is, so you've you got to put on the armor of God. Verse 11. Now jump down to verse 16. Verse 13, he starts to enumerate pieces of the armor. And in verse 16, he says this, in all circumstances, so all the time, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. So the warrior has a shield of faith. All right. Take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Well, there's a powerful statement. Flaming darts of the evil one. They used to take arrows back then. They do still do it today in some form. Take arrows and dip them in tar, ignite the tar, and then shoot the arrow. The double danger, double destruction. The arrow and its piercing and, and the burning of the flame. Fiery darts. <laughs> Satan loves to shoot fiery darts at us. And and the point that I'm making here is that the questions being asked, you can come back to Romans 8 now. The questions being asked in Romans 8. Those who questions. Another way to think of them is that they're not just questions. They're fiery darts. They're the kind of things that Satan hurls at us. So, for instance, you take the first question, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? We have here a fiery dart. You know, as a Christian, you live your life in circumstances, go sour around you and you, you have a problem, a disappointment, a broken relationship, an unanswered prayer, a bad diagnosis, the death of a loved one, a financial reversal, and the net result is that you start to feel like God just is not for me. God's against me. He's out to get me. That's how it can feel. That's the first fiery dart. First question is right behind It's this fiery dart. It's clear that God's out to get you. And Satan will throw that at you in a circumstance. God's after you. You think he's good? You think he's on your side? He's after you. This is exactly what God did in, excuse me, what Satan did in the first recorded temptation in Genesis chapter 3 when he approached eve in the garden of eden and he said to her has god actually said you shall not eat from any tree in the garden oh he twists it and plays it is god really good isn't he out to get you second question verse 33 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now notice that we're talking here about charge, singular charge, singular accusation, singular point of attack. I think what's going on here is that, as you know, whether you're a Christian or not, there are times when you do something, you struggle with something, And you do it, and you feel so ashamed, so wrong, so guilty, so defiled. Satan loves to take that and hurl a dart. second dart, right behind that second question, you jerk. You just done something that God could never, forgive third question verse 34 who is to condemn now unlike the second dart which just had to do with a singular accusation the idea here the word condemn it's a much broader thing it has much more to do with our identity With our accumulated sins, our our brokenness, our track record over time. And a sense of condemnation and a reality of condemnation before God has to do with defeat. You can develop an identity in your own brain that is so repulsive or so overwhelming that you just feel like God has had enough of me. And that's the third fiery dart. You are hopeless. You are a disgrace. You are beyond God's mercy. Notice the difference between this and the second dart. The second dart is about a particular event, something that happened. This one's about you and your identity. You are just hopeless. You're a disgrace. You are beyond God's mercy. And Paul's saying here, who can condemn us? Verse 35, we'll get into next week. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? I want to just suffice it to say that the dart here is, God might just give up on me. We'll come back to that next week. This text presents the questions, and right behind them are these darts, fiery darts of Satan. Dark number one, it's clear God's out to get you. Dark number two, you've done something that God can never forgive. And dark number three, you are beyond God's mercy. So now the third step. We look at the text here, and we see that in all these cases, Paul answers the questions with the truths of the gospel. He doesn't do anything fancy. He doesn't do anything, you know, esoteric or unusual. He just very simply takes the powerful, life-changing truths of the gospel. Truths that he's already presented in this book of Romans. And he just applies them to the question. He just applies them to the fiery dart. It's like this text. Verses 31 following is as gospel-stoked text as you can get anywhere in the Bible. Look at the first question. 31. Who can be against us if God's for us? And how does Paul go on to answer it? He answers it in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. Didn't hold him back. He didn't hang on to his precious, beloved self, which is what the son is really the father in the mystery of the Trinity. God didn't hold himself back. He delivered himself up. He delivered his son up. That word there that translates gave, he who did not spear his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's a, a more uncommon verb, forgive. And it's a word that you should know. It's a word that is used in the Gospels time and again to tell us what happened to Jesus. We are told in the Gospels that Judas gave Jesus over. Betrayed him. We're told in the Gospels that the chief priests and the scribes gave Jesus over. They handed him over to the soldiers. We're told in the Gospels that Pilate gave Jesus over, handed him over, betrayed him over. But here, in Romans 8, we are being told the real story. The ultimate story. That it wasn't Judas. It wasn't the scribes and the Pharisees. It wasn't Pilate. God himself gave, handed over, betrayed his son unto death. Death on the cross. A 19th century preacher captured this so well. His name's Octavius Winslow. He's British, not surprising with a name like that. Here's what he said. Who delivered Jesus over to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the scribes and Pharisees for envy. No. It was the Father for love. Love of his people. Paul's arguing here from the greater to the lesser. I mean, look at what God did, verse 32. Now, if he did this, if he handed over, gave his son over for us, did not spare him but gave him over, how will he not also give to you when those circumstances seem so dire? When you feel like God is out to get you, how will God not somehow intervene and give you what you need in that situation? You just preach the gospel to yourself. Next question. Verse 33, we get another gospel soak. You know, he just, Paul takes the gospel and just douses the fiery dart. Question number two, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? So the fiery dart there is, you've just done something that God could never forgive. And Paul's answer, look at it there in verse 33. It's God who justifies. And I think what he's saying there is, this is not about you. Salvation was never about you, what you could do. It's what God has done in Christ that salvation is about. It's God who justifies. You don't justify yourself. I mean, so often when we're in those situations, we feel like, oh, I've just done something that's so messed up, so, so broken. And you start to kind of justify, you know, well, but but I did this and I do that and I'm, I'm not that bad a person. We start to accumulate all kinds of reasons to kind of make ourselves feel better. And what Paul's saying is cut all that out. Stop it. It's God who justifies. Rest in that. Find your strength and hope in that. Preach preach the gospel to yourself. Verse thirty-four. Next question: Who is to condemn? Here, remember the gospel dart is. I mean, the fiery dart is that you are beyond God's mercy. You are you are hopeless. You are a disgrace. You are beyond god's mercy who is there to condemn and once again paul goes right to the gospel he just can't get enough of the gospel look at how he answers it verse 34 who's to condemn well christ jesus is the one who died for our sins that's kind of where he begins and you can almost see him as he's dictating this to the to to the to the scribe you're saying christ jesus is the one who died well wait wait more he's the one who was raised to life so his, his, his death covered for our sins. His resurrection proved that the Father was happy with that. And then he, he adds more. Oh, and, and not only that, he's at the right hand of God the Father. He's ascended and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. A, a priest never sat in the temple. But this priest is seated at the right hand of the Father because his work is done, and he's there. And he says, "Oh, oh, yeah." And there's one other thing. He's interceding for us. He's pleading his death for us. And the way I think about that is, you know, uh, uh, Satan's up there accusing me. My own heart's accusing me before God of something that I did. Something really stupid and jerk-like. And 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 Jesus says, "Pay no attention." to what's being said here, Father. Uh, That Restusha, look at my hands. See the nail prints in my hands. He's mine. My blood rescued him. Totally gospel-soaked. That's how we douse fiery darts the evil one that's how we answer these questions come in our hearts let me conclude with this i'm sure most if not all of you know the name martin luther reformation hero broken sinner like all of us he had his strengths he had his weaknesses He was someone who had more than his share of struggles with Satan, with the very kind of things that we're talking about today. Doubts and accusations and depressions. On one occasion, in a letter to a friend, he wrote something that captures so well the emphasis of Romans 8, 31 and following. Here's what he wrote. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. Oh, I admit that I deserve death and hell, but what of it? There is such a thing as the gospel, and I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf, and his name is Jesus Christ the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that in our doubts and depressions and dark accusations, we don't have to climb some mountain, We don't have to swim to the bottom of the sea. The answer to them is right here, right near us. It's Christ and his gospel. And I pray for my dear brothers and sisters here in front of me that you would give them each an even deeper understanding of how great your commitment and loyalty are. May they understand how having given to us Christ, you freely give us all things that we need for life and salvation. May they understand that it's you who justifies. And may they understand that it's Christ Jesus who died, who rose, who's at the right hand, and who is interceding for them. And I pray this, I pray all these things in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen.